I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. The UK is buzzing with life and bounty. By now, lots of us gardeners are plucking juicy red tomatoes off the vine, snipping great green cucumbers off their stalks, and digging up our main crop potatoes. And you might have noticed the hum of wildlife in your garden or allotment. I've certainly had dragonflies, wasps, and other insects stopping by my bee drinkers, and every morning I've been watching my local birds coming down for a drink in my little pond. This abundance that August brings is exactly why we're going to be catching up with garden and food writer Mark Diacono. He'll be teaching us how to turn our buckets of shiny fresh produce into tasty fermented treats. And if the buzz of bumbling bees is what you want to hear more of in your garden, we've got you covered as Andrew Perry from Urban Herbs talks us through the herbs that will give our fuzzy friends all the nectar they need over the seasons. Finally, we'll be chatting with teenage conservationist Bella Lack, who'll be talking us through the good news that is rewilding. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. This extra hot summer has brought a veritable glut of fruit and veg to consume. And if you're anything like me, you'll be nursing a deep fear that something may go to waste, especially if your neighbours are starting to refuse the endless offers of courgettes and cucumbers. So if that's the case and you're looking for a preserve that's a touch more unique than your typical jams and pickles, why not consider fermentation? At least, that's what our next expert guest is here to convince you to do as a way to preserve your summer bounty for the months ahead. Hello, my name's Mark Diacono. I'm a food writer, garden writer. I spend my time growing, gardening, the occasional walk and eating, and it's a very nice way to live. At this time of year, you know, summer into autumn, there's so much around that's ready to be harvested, so much at its absolute peak, and it's really easy to throw either a load of sugar at it and make it into some kind of jam or whatever, which I'm not against doing in some instances. But as well as doing that kind of preserving and making syrups and vinegars and, and dehydrating, you know, drying stuff, which I really do love, I'm a real big fan of fermenting. I really, really love fermenting fruit, vegetables, whatever's around, because it's something I know that intimidates a lot of people. You know, am I going to poison myself? Am I taking the right bacteria in? Have I excluded the stuff that might do me any harm? But it's actually so very, very simple to do. A third of the food that's eaten on this planet is fermented. And we're okay with fermented stuff in certain ways. You know, we're quite happy to have a glass of wine or a beer. We're perfectly happy eating bread, all of which has been fermented. But if you can get the really simple skills right with fermenting, you end up with not only incredible flavours, but actually food that feeds us both in a kind of passing way in the way that we normally eat food, but also because we're enriching our internal biome, you know, our gut health, it feeds us kind of twice in an enduring way. But you know, I wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't delicious. 
So a lot of people find the idea of fermentation slightly intimidating. No bacteria is involved. We know that bacteria can in some cases be harmful. So how do I know it's okay? And all of that stuff. I used to be exactly that person, you know, I totally did. It was interesting. I remember listening to the radio and somebody was talking about how fermented food in this country, you know, here in the UK, would become such a big deal and the idea of eating fermented food because we're only beginning to understand the importance of gut health to us in terms of our mental health, in terms of our mental well-being, in terms of our physical well-being. And I started to eat more fermented food, not making it, but I used to buy it. So sauerkrauts and drinks like kombucha. And I really felt a kind of odd uplift in my resting state. I'm really not given to that kind of thing, you know. Even getting a, a herb tea past me is hard work, as my wife will tell you. But I really felt that. And so I got into the making of it much more. The core rules are really simple. You know, there's key amount of salt. So if you're making sauerkraut or something like that, you want to add absolutely on the nose 2% of salt. If you do that, you're creating the conditions in which all the harmful bacteria cannot exist. So your number one is you ain't going to kill yourself. You're not even going to make yourself mildly ill, right? So you've done that. You've wiped that out of the equation, which is immediately reassuring to anyone like me who was coming at it. But the other thing with 2% salt is it doesn't make everything crazy salty. It just makes the conditions in which all the useful bacteria can proliferate. And in the case of something like sauerkraut or kimchi, you're really talking about the lactic acid bacteria. They're around, they're on your hands, they're in your house, they're on food, they're everywhere. You know, we're not creating a new thing. What all we're doing is actually making the conditions for these lovely, useful, beneficial bacteria to thrive. So you add the 2% salt to your vegetable, you rub it in, you leave it a little while, you squeeze it, if it's something like cabbage, and it starts to produce a brine, and you squish it into a jar because you want the brine to rise slightly above the cabbage itself, and you leave it alone in the absence of oxygen. And in four or five days, the bacteria, the useful bacteria, start to proliferate. They munch through the sugar, so they go through the carbohydrates that are in the, the cabbage. And while they're doing that, they're chomp, 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 eating up the sugars, but they do two things. They release carbon dioxide, which is why you get a slight fizz to fermented drinks. You get them a slight fizz, maybe sometimes to fermented foods, but also they release lactic acid, hence they're called lactic acid bacteria. And that's what brings the sour to the sauerkraut, what brings the, the tartness to a kimchi, all of that stuff. So it's kind of natural, it's what's happening. But you can stop that process at any point. You go, do you know what, that's sour enough by putting it in the fridge. Putting it in the fridge makes it cold and that's not conditions in which the bacteria will keep multiplying, keep doing their work, they just hold. So, you know, at the times of big glut, so summer going into autumn really, the kitchen can be a little bit of a mess, but a good mess. What there'll be in the background definitely is the whir of the dehydrator. If you've got a dehydrator, if you haven't, try and get a dehydrator because they're so good. If not, it doesn't matter because you can do it on a very low oven. But I'll be doing things like apples. If there are a lot of apples, I'll just core them, slice them thin, you know, like pan coin thickness, leave them in a very low oven or the dehydrator, just taking all the moisture out of them and they last forever. And they're delicious, really intensifies the flavor, really nice kind of chewy, chewy thing. I'll be making fruit leather as well, which is really a kind of very, sweetened pulp that you make you know it could be apple it could be raspberry it could be apple and raspberry it could be apricot 
and you just smear that out onto some baking paper, nice and thin, and you again put it in the oven and you leave it till it's dry, 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 and then you can peel it off that paper and it will just come out like a big sheet of rubber. You fold that up, slice it into maybe an inch wide so you get these long ribbons like a belt of really intense fruit that you can freeze. They'll keep forever anyway because they're so sweet. I'll be throwing lots of things into vodka, so I'll be making lots of infusions. If it's something like quince, I'll be grating that up, putting it in a jar with just a touch of sugar, maybe an inch of sugar in a litre jar. The rest will be vodka and I'll leave that and let the colour and the flavour all infuse into it over a few months. And that'll be really nice because that'll be paying off at Christmas and everyone will be happy. So I hope I've given you some words of encouragement about preserving in whatever fashion that is. I hope if you've not fermented that you'll be inspired to do so. It's the easiest, most delicious thing. If you want any encouragement, if you've got any questions, if you want to see some ideas, hop over to my Instagram, Mark Diacono, and there'll be some tips there. But you can always message me. You know, I'm really, really happy to share whatever I can in this because if you've grown it and it's worked and there it is, the last thing you want to do is not be enjoying the amazing bounty of the harvest for as long as you can in the best form that you can. Thanks, Mark. I absolutely love making cucumber pickle from the cucumbers in my greenhouse. They seem to come in these little mini gluts where in one week you don't have any and the next week you have eight all at once. And my friends go absolutely mad for it. Some of them will even eat it just straight out the jar like it's a giant yogurt. Fermenting for me is kind of the next stage in my home produce preserving journey. I'm really excited to make kimchi and sauerkraut and all of these beautiful fermented things that we know are so so good for our health. So if you've tried your hand at jams and pickles why not step it up a gear and give fermented foods a go. Now if you've noticed a distinct lack of life buzzing around your garden and you want to make the most of every square inch of your plot for both pollinator friendly flowers and for things to eat why not plant a few herbs to feed our fuzzy friends. At least that's the advice from our next expert and self-proclaimed herb geek. My name's Andy, I run Urban Herbs. We're a small business based in Midlands, UK. Bees are increasingly deprived of plants that they can come to each day to busily work away. And we can all do something to change that. And I'm really passionate about actually growing herbs for bees because herbs are such low maintenance plants that provide such an amazing option for the bees. I like to think that as we've all kind of embraced the low maintenance garden idea, and we've got to be real about that. So many of us live in a world now where we need to have two cars, we pave our drives, we get rid of flowering front gardens. But I'm really passionate about spreading the word that we can all make a difference. It's not about throwing our hands in the air and saying, isn't it awful? We can all do something practical. We grow a fantastic variety of time called Creeping Red Time. And about three hours ago, I was sitting outside having an early morning cup of tea, watching literally hundreds of bees busily working away on the plant. They work much harder than I do, and I find them so inspiring to watch. But it also made me realise that if we all just planted three or four really low-maintenance herbs, herbs like creeping red thyme on our front drive, that would make such a difference to our local bee populations. The other thing to consider when you're planting herbs for bees 
is to actually consider the length of the season. Right now, there is so much colour out in our gardens at the moment. Bees have got quite a few options as to where to go to work. But especially early on in the season and later into the season, it's important to think about providing the bees with options during these periods. So when you're designing a garden for bees, you should think about that length of season. You can plant chives to provide options during that early spring flowering period. You can plant beautiful varieties like hyssop or chamomile covering that early to mid-summer period. And then there are so many different varieties of lavender that do a fantastic job of flowering deep late into autumn when the bees might be struggling to find the flowers to work on. So if you choose the herbs for bees really carefully, you can provide a really long season for them. And I think that's really cool. One of my favorite herbs for bees is a variety called hyssop. And I love to talk about this plant because it's a variety that I think is really, really underrated. Not only does it have a beautiful flavor and it looks really beautiful, but the bees really love hyssop flowers. It's low maintenance. It's perfect for growing in a container. And what you could actually do is take an established plant in a nine centimeter pot, remove it from its existing pot, put it into a larger container, just use a nice free draining potting mix. Hyssop's very easy to grow, but it doesn't want to be waterlogged. Place it somewhere sunny, during periods of dry weather, give it some water. And as the plant grows, make sure you prune it just to make the plant bush out to discourage the plant from becoming leggy, keeping it looking beautiful, thick and bushy. Why is hyssop good for bees? It flowers around midsummer, and it just goes on and on and on. And it's really heartening actually when the real heat of midsummer has just diminished slightly to see the bees having the option to work away. Hyssop's got a beautiful peppery, minty flavour. The flavour's really, really difficult to describe unless you could smell it right now, in which case you'd know exactly what I mean. Myself and my wife are big fans of the slow cooker. So as soon as the temperature starts to drop in the autumn, the slow cooker comes back out and we will be adding hyssop to various casseroles, soups and stews. It's a variety that's perfect for autumnal cooking, actually. We've just potted some of the hyssop plants into containers in our front garden. It looks beautiful. And once established, you can certainly pick some of it and add it to really delicious meals. I hope that I've done a good job of convincing you that you should definitely plant some herbs for bees. Not only making your front garden look amazing, providing you some delicious foodie options, but also providing a really, really happy workplace for your local bees. Thanks, Andy. This warm, sunny weather can be a bit of a double-edged sword for many kinds of wildlife. A lot of insects really like the warm and dry, but the dry weather's kind of suppressed a bit of the flowering of many wildflowers, so there's not so much food available, which means that our gardens are even more vital than ever. Now, going back to herbs, many of them like a dry, sunny spot. So, yeah, many herbs are doing really well. Things like hyssop, things like thyme, they're Mediterranean plants, so they're adapted to low summer rainfall, so they're actually doing pretty well in gardens at the moment. I've got fennel on the allotment, and it is alive with hoverflies. It's looking great. So the creeping red thyme and the hyssop that Andy mentioned, they're Mediterranean-type herbs, so they're doing really well in this warm, dry, sunny weather. And if you want to plant them in your garden, give them the sunniest spot that you can. 
What happens when, despite our best efforts, the home garden is simply not wild enough? Well, that is where rewilding can come in. It's a progressive approach to conservation. It's all about letting nature take care of herself, enabling natural processes to shape the land, repair damaged ecosystems and restore degraded landscapes, all with the hope that the outcome will be a wilder and more diverse habitat. At this year's RHS Chelsea Flower Show, the Rewilding Britain Garden was wildly popular and it won a gold medal along with Best Show Garden. Let's revisit why the designers Lulu Urquhart and Adam Hunt were so passionate about rewilding with the help of a long-lost member of our native wildlife, the beaver. Where we realise we're at in Britain, there aren't habitats that successfully and succinctly hold and support flourishing life of our animals and our our plants and our insects. And so I think it's just really important for us to change our lens and remember a flourishing biodiversity. And this is what we passionately feel is important to bring to the public at this time. We think that this garden is important for Chelsea because rewilding brings a message of hope. We went to a beaver dam in South Devon, and while we were standing there, we saw a white stork flying over. And obviously, suitable habitat, huge, great floodplain, which has now got some beavers in it. And those little moments are just full of joy, and we want to try and bring that message across in the garden. Beavers themselves are one of the species that are quite easy to reintroduce. They have a very positive impact on flood alleviation. They're quite contained in that they don't stray that far from the rivers. And they're not significant predators in the way that, for example, lynx or wolf might be. So there are certain species that are being introduced at the moment, of which beaver in the UK is one, the Eurasian beaver, that are in a way testing the public opinion and pushing it forwards and it seems to be a very very positive response we've talked to many farmers who are saying well where their fields are affected it's pretty much land that gets flooded anyway so it's not that useful in farming terms so we're not only talking about beavers with this garden we're talking about rewilding as a process and a beaver landscape fits chelsea quite well because obviously we're constantinering a much larger landscape into 150 square metres. And, you know, the positive benefits of allowing a small amount of marginal land or particularly land around waterways, instead of farming right close up to it, allowing these waterways and the marginal places some space and breath for nature to re-establish herself, it's a cyclical beneficial thing. Allowing nature to re-establish herself is exactly the vision that inspires our next guest. She's a conservationist and an author at only 19, who shares with us what a brighter future could look like if we let things get a little bit wild. I'm Bella Lack and I'm 19. We're going to be talking about my book, Children of the Anthropocene, which I began writing when I was about 17. One of the key things I learnt whilst writing this book was kind of the incredible power of young people to make change. And also what inspired me while speaking to them was like the unbridled idealism which so many of the young people had, which I think is slightly conditioned out of you as you grow up and society kind of gives you these inhibitions. 
So rewilding is, is a really interesting concept and it's quite controversial and it's very hard to define because is rewilding taking things back to how they used to be? And then if it is that, what is the baseline of wilderness that we want to take it back to? Is it, you know, 1950s? Is it post-industrialization? Is it completely before human influence? And there's also two different senses of rewilding. There's rewilding nature, and then there's a more kind of internal rewilding of ourselves, which is to do with nature deficit disorder and the fact that young people, and in fact everyone, but especially young people at the moment, I would say is so incredibly disconnected from the natural world because so many people don't have access to wilderness and also don't know what wilderness should be like because of shifting baseline syndrome, because we've grown up in this incredibly nature-deprived world. So there's, there's rewilding ourselves, there's rewilding nature, and it's important because I think so much of activism and conservation is about railing against the system, it's what we don't want. And rewilding is completely the opposite, it's creating this desirable future that we can move towards where we live in cohesion with nature, where nature is not isolated in fragmented pockets, but actually it's in cities and it's nature-friendly farming. And, you know, we work with farmers rather than kind of demonising farmers as the ones creating problems through pesticides and deforestation. So I think it just completely turns the negative narrative on its head and provides this much more positive future for us to move towards, which is so, so important when you're thinking about sustaining a movement, because negativity really isn't going to engage and attract people to making change. I think it's so exciting to be able to, rather than rail against, have this future full of creativity and kind of possibility that we can imagine, because we don't know exactly what the UK could look like, in fact, the world could look like, if we focus on wilding. Imagine the species that have become functionally extinct that could be reintroduced. And imagine, you know, living with a garden brimming with nature in a city where air is less polluted, where we're living alongside many more species. I just think, for me, that's an incredibly exciting future to move towards. And I don't think anyone would rather have a garden paved with concrete when you can have a garden brimming with, you know, butterflies and other insects and hedgehogs kind of amble across our gardens. To hear more from Bella and other young climate activists, pick up a copy of The Children of the Anthropocene. I love that line about the unbridled idealism of young people. You know, I'm twice her age. Sometimes we forget to dream and we forget to hope and dare to dream of better things ahead. And I really like that. And we can all do a little bit of rewilding in our own gardens. It's about looking what nature is already beginning to make a home there. In my tiny, tiny little urban garden, I noticed ivy starting to climb up the fence. Now, a traditional gardener might be like, oh, well, I've not planted that, so let's rip it out. But actually, when I step back and look, ivy wants to be there. Ivy's a brilliant wildlife plant. It's great for pollinators. It's great for creating shelter, for habitats, for all sorts of wildlife. So actually, I've left that ivy to grow up my fence. You know, an ivy growing in old conifer hedges and things actually massively increases their wildlife value. So I think any size of garden can take something from that rewilding ethos. 
Well, that's about it for today's show. As we're all aware, it's hot out there. Sometimes we suffer in the heat and sometimes wildlife does too. So if you can do just one thing, maybe leave little saucers out for thirsty wildlife. If you've got hedgehogs in the garden, they will definitely appreciate a ready water source. So will the bees, so will all manner of invertebrates. So if you can make a bee drinker, leave a saucer of water out for thirsty mammals, it could really make the difference between life and death. And talking of insects, I spotted a really cool thing, a white-faced darter dragonfly, which is really quite rare, over my garden the other day. And that was just a really wonderful sign that wildlife is there if we care to take the time and look. Well, that's about it for today's show. So from me, Gareth Richards, catch you next time. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.